So welcome to the podcast, episode 88. Good to have you with me. Um, good, good to have me with you, however, however, however you're configuring this in your head. So um, uh, for our initial topic or a theme of, of this podcast, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, jury nullification. And, um, and I'll, I want to define what jury nullification is first and then maybe tell a little autobiographical story and then talk about why this is important. Um, jury nullification uh, is the doctrine that when a jury is convened and they are sitting in a trial, they are doing they, – they have authority to judge both the defendant and the law. All right, so when a jury is convened, this is what the doctrine holds. When the jury is convened, they are sitting in judgment on the defendant. Is he guilty or not guilty of the crime alleged? And if they determine that he is guilty of the, of the crime as the, as, the, as the law prohibits it on paper, but they say that law is a stupid law, the jury can come back with a not guilty verdict not because they're saying that the defendant didn't do it, right? Uh, let's say you've got one of those arcane laws that you read about on the internet, never spit back at a llama or something, you know. Um, or um, you, you've got some arcane uh, law and someone is brought up on charges and it's um, not disputed by anyone on the jury that the person – uh, accused or charged of violating that law did in fact violate that law. But if the jury thinks the law is a stupid law, they can come back with a not guilty verdict and there's nothing anybody can do about it, which means that juries have authority over the law and not just over the person accused under the law. Now, uh, uh, the anecdote or the story from uh, a number of years ago, probably 15 or 20, 15 or 20 years ago, quite a, uh, quite a while. No, it was probably over 20 years ago now. I'm getting old. So um, I was uh, selected to be on a jury, and uh, which was kind of astonishing because I was in the jury pool and at different times we were interviewed and I told, I told the attorneys who interviewed me that I believed in jury nullification. And I still got on the jury. Uh, but I think they thought it was a moot point, which it probably was because it was a murder trial and I don't have any objection to laws against murder. Right? So I, I, I wouldn't be sitting in judgment on the law against murder. Um, but I got on the jury and I wound up, uh, I wound up serving as the foreman, of, uh, the foreman of the jury. Now, uh, and, and we found the defendant, uh, as it happened, we found the defendant – uh, guilty. So, and then uh, sometime later, he was sent off to the penitentiary, guilty of this murder. And he came back later, uh, was brought up to the courthouse, and confessed formally to having done it. So he acknowledged his guilt. Uh, he acknowledged his guilt later. The thing, the thing that was striking about this um, setup was the difference between what happened when we were in the jury pool before we were selected for the jury and what happened after we were on the jury. While we were all sitting out there in the jury pool, you know, random um, citizens who had gotten this, gotten the letter saying 
okay, you have to report this at such a time. We were shown an inspirational video. And the inspirational video was all about how juries were so important to our freedoms, et cetera. And at one part of the video, they, um, they talked about how juries were an important part of our struggle for independence against Great Britain in the war for independence, which is quite true. So I, I didn't object to this um, video because I was, I was grateful they were, they were bringing this up. But the reason juries were important in our struggle against Great Britain in the run-up to the War for Independence is that Americans did not like the laws against smuggling that uh, the parliament in England would pass. And so consequently, when someone was arrested for smuggling and they were brought to trial, uh, because they were uh, Americans, they the jury that was selected to uh, hear their case was a bunch of fellow Americans. They were tried in a jury by a jury of their peers, and American juries routinely refused to convict people who were charged with smuggling. They could could have been caught red-handed. You know, everybody. There was no doubt that this person was in fact smuggling, contrary to the law that had been passed by Parliament. But American juries would not convict. They just wouldn't convict. And we were shown a little video um, that referred to that. Not It didn't go into the details, but it referred to that reality in a three cheers for American juries in the 1700s. But the reason we were cheering these American juries in the 1700s on is because those American juries were practicing jury nullification. They were nullifying the law by refusing to convict people um, who were charged under a law that they didn't like or they found distasteful. So that was one thing. So we were shown the three, we were shown hooray for jury nullification inspirational video when we were in the jury pool. And then when uh, the jury was selected, at some point in the proceedings, the judge gave us sort of um, a charge and the charge was that we were not permitted to think for ourselves and we were required to do absolutely everything that he told us to do. We, we were not permitted to uh, veer off the straight and narrow, not even a little bit, not at all. In other words, there was no – in his charge to us and the judge's charge to us, there was no room for jur- jury nullification. But we had all been shown – a wonderful inspirational video about how, you know, how uh, we owed in part our independence as a country to those stalwart American juries that would would refuse to convict if it was a bad law. So uh, if you're if you're ever selected uh, for a jury, I would encourage you to not try to get out of it unless it's absolutely essential that you, you you're providentially hindered from serving. If you have the opportunity to serve, I would encourage you to serve, and I would also encourage you to read up on jury nullification uh, before you do serve. So in our book review for this episode, which I remind you is episode 88, in our book review, I want to review uh, a book by a couple of uh, men named Dyer and Watson, and the book is called C.S. Lewis on Politics and Natural Law. C.S. Lewis on Politics and Natural Law. 
So um, uh, probably the best thing about this uh, book is that it helps set aside um, uh, one of the negative effects of C- one of C.S. Lewis's uh, routine disclaimers. C.S. Lewis claims to be bored by or uninterested in politics. And uh, what this book shows is that he was a sophisticated political thinker, not an apathetic uh, schlub who didn't like didn't have anything to do with uh, politics. I think it would be fair to say that Lewis was uninterested in what might be called partisan politics. The, uh, C.S. Lewis was probably the most unlikely person to have a yard sign for a candidate, a particular candidate in his yard. So uh, if you said uh, C.S. Lewis was not a political animal, if you mean by that he was not interested in partisan politics, elect Murphy for this uh, uh, position or elect Murphy as a member of parliament, uh, I think that's fair. But this book shows that he was well-informed on the history of political theory, um, not just well informed, but very, very up on it, and was the kind of person who was uh, um, drew conclusions from his understanding of political theory, and his um, his instincts all ran in a um, in a profoundly conservative direction. I think there are times, there are places where he will say things that indicate. You know, he in correspondence with uh, uh, an, an an American correspondent who had difficulty with uh, paying for something in healthcare um, over here, he he sympathized. He he would say something like, "Even though the weights over here can be exasperating, uh, we you wouldn't have had the problem you had if you'd been over here." That sort of thing. So he he takes some of the the standard elements of the political arrangement in Great Britain of his day for granted, but he is profoundly conservative in his outlook. And, um, and what I found is that his, um, re- reading this book, is that his approach to politics could be uh, described, his, his ideal setup would be that of a classical liberal. Uh, and by classical liberal, I mean, uh, in the Lockean uh, tradition, not, not, um, liberal in America today usually means left wing. Uh, for Lewis, for a classical liberal is someone who believes in um, who believes in you know free markets and laissez-faire, and his sympathies were generally in that direction. And he really liked it when the government left people alone. Um, one of his bug, one of one of his pet peeves throughout his life was the pet peeve that came from being interfered with. So this book on politics and C.S. Lewis on politics and natural law is a very informative book. Uh, it draws together a number of places in, in Lewis's uh, works where he is uh, uh, interacting with foundational uh, political theory. And if you're interested in political theory, if you're interested in natural law, if you're interested in uh, political science. And if you're interested in C.S. Lewis, uh, this is a book for you. Martiology. The word anosios means unholy. 
And Paul uses it twice in the pastorals. One of the purposes of the law that God gave us is the restraint of the wicked and unholy. Knowing this, it says, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy, there it is, for unholy and profane. 1 Timothy 1, 9. And the list that continues is equally unsavory. And later, Paul says that in the last days, quote, men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, boasters, proud, blasphemous, disobedient of parents, unthankful, unholy. There it is again. 2 Timothy 3.2. And again, the list goes on. From the company it keeps, we may conclude that unholiness is a matter of being ethically grimy. Too many Christians define holiness in terms of a seraphic countenance and an implied halo. And, and so they therefore see unholiness as the mere absence of that, meaning a state of being ordinary. So if I don't have the seraphic countenance, if I don't have the halo, then I'm just an ordinary Joe. And so that's what unholiness is thought to be. But as Paul uses unholy here, it means polluted and defiled. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.